0: Well, it's good to see everybody here today. Last week you had to uh, brave the snow and now you've got to brave the coronavirus. So welcome here. It's good to be together with you. As uh, Stephen was talking about, we do have uh, some books available in the Resource Center. And um, I'm excited about, I wish we could pile more and more on there, but uh, this one particularly is, uh, is one that I wanted to highlight to begin with. The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And it's, um, it's a very helpful book. Again, it's very short, uh, but it's got um, a lot of punch to it. And I, his opening line of chapter 1 kind of um, sets the tone for the rest of the book. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, uh, and that with that statement... He is preparing us to look into the rest of the book for who God is, because we all have images, we all have ideas, we all have perceptions of who God is, of what He's like, and some of them are accurate, some of them are inaccurate, and so in this book he is going through to talk about um, different aspects of who God is, His self-existence, His uh, His eternity, His his omniscience, uh, his goodness, his mercy, etc. And so in 23 chapters, very short chapters, very readable and very devotional, he takes us through a basic um, discussion of, basic but thorough at the same time, discussion of uh, different aspects of who God is. And so I would uh, commend that to you. Again, it's back there. And um, if, you, uh, if you want to grab that, I, I recommend it to you. It's a very uh, good and helpful book. This morning we are going to be in Romans chapter 10, and we're going to cover uh, verses 1 through 4, at least that's my intention. And so to that end, let me go ahead and read for us these first four verses of Romans chapter 10. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come together corporately to worship you. To acknowledge that you are our God, our creator and our sustainer. We honor you. We bow down to you. And we praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. We praise you for what we get to discuss today from Romans chapter 10 about this salvation, this righteousness of God that is ours in Christ by faith. We praise you for that salvation. We praise you for what you have accomplished. And we give you thanks. And we will give you thanks for all eternity. As we come to understand in new and better and deeper ways just the magnitude of your grace. We give you thanks. And this morning as we have your word open in front of us and as we get to discuss this topic, we pray that you would be at work by your spirit applying these words to us that you would minister to us this morning, even in these next minutes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a man I worked with when I did road construction uh, right out of high school, the last couple of years of high school, and then the first couple of years afterwards, I did road construction here in Fallon, and there was a man I worked with that uh, uh, he and I would have spiritual conversations a lot. It was very frequent that we would be talking about the gospel. He had uh, grown up a uh, Roman Catholic, and then he had converted to Mormonism, and so he had very interesting perspectives and, and, uh, and led to spiritual conversation uh, very frequently. One day he turned to me and he said to me that uh, that I was not being very loving towards him. And uh, I was a little bit taken aback by that. But what he what he meant was that I was just too intent on clarifying the differences in the things that we were saying. I was too intent on making sure the gospel we were talking about was a pure and true and biblical and saving gospel. And so he uh, he didn't like that. He was uh, now, admittedly, I was a young man, and I was a new christian and so it 's very possible that I was a little more vehement perhaps than I needed to be, but uh, what he really wanted from me, what he was objecting to regarding me, was not my demeanor, not my intensity per se he He just wanted us to get along, and couldn 't I just uh, let this go and rejoice in the fact that I had a fellow coworker who didn't swear and was a moral guy, and and just be happy with that and go on, and so that's what he wanted from me. He didn't want my criticism or my desire to clarify regarding the gospel as as much, and so uh, that that was his desire for me. And so I explained to him when he said to me, "You're not very loving, Brennan," I I tried to explain to him that well. My desire was, was for him to see the fatal errors, the flaws in his own uh, beliefs. And my desire to do so stemmed from my love for him. That He needed to know about this. He needed to understand what he was believing and the errors of what he was believing and what would be the consequences. And in fact, it was my love for him that drove me to want to clarify that with him. I I longed for him to be saved in the same way that I had been saved not long before that. Well, by the time we get to Romans chapter 10, Paul has been focusing on the gospel for several chapters already he's he's done a deep dive into it he's examined he's looked at it he's taken it apart he's thought about things we've never thought of he's dealt with objections that that maybe we've had maybe we haven't had maybe we've had them brought against us he's he's looked at it very very closely and in depth and after celebrating God's work in the gospel in his work in salvation Paul's mind turns to his kinsmen to his fellow Jews and he he is, is concerned for them. His heart breaks for them because in, in large numbers they were rejecting the gospel that he was preaching. And so he said in the beginning of chapter 9 that he had great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in his heart because of them. He, he feels, at a very deep level, he feels their rejection of the gospel and what that means for them. And he even goes on to say that I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul was invested. Paul was invested. He said hard words. He spoke hard things. He wrote hard things. But he was invested. And he cared. And his writing to them was out of a place of very deep love. And then after a chapter-long discussion of why so many Jews are in fact rejecting the gospel and how that that is not a problem with God's promises, after having worked through that for all of chapter 9, then he comes back to that same topic again at the beginning of chapter 10 where we see his heart for the lost. Look what he says there in verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. His heart's desire was for their salvation his concern for them was their salvation his concern wasn't primarily that they were persecuted in parts of the empire his concern for them was not was not primarily about temporal well-being or their respect in the community or or anything like that he he was concerned for their salvation his heart broke not because they suffered, not because they were outcast, not because they had to get along in a difficult society. His heart broke for them because they didn't have salvation and in fact were rejecting salvation when he was proclaiming that gospel. His heart for them was for the gospel, not for any version of a social gospel. His concern primarily was for their eternity. His concern was for their heart. His concern for them was for the judgment that they would face before God and the justice that they would receive. And he wanted mercy for them instead. And so his desire was for their salvation. And look at how strong a language he uses when he's talking about his heartfelt desire, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. He could have just said desire. He could have said, I want this. I I desire, but he's... He's talking about something visceral. His heart's desire. His ministry to the Jews was was not a duty that he had to honor. Well, this is what I have to do, this is what God called me to do, so I, you know, I guess I better fulfill that duty. His concern was genuine. It was right from the heart. And and by the way, they didn't always perceive it as love, did they, when he was preaching? They didn't. But his concern, his desire for them came right up from his heart. It was his passion. It wasn't just his responsibility. It was his passion. This is what he desired. This is what he wanted for them. He could say that their salvation was truly his heart's desire. He he felt so strongly that he could even say that he wished himself. He wished he could make that deal, that that, that, that transaction where he himself would be accursed if it would mean their salvation. That's how much he cared. That's the depth of, the strength of his heartfelt desire for them. And so he has for them and expresses it here. His, he's motivated for prayer. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them. You see the connection there between his heart's desire, what's going on internally within him, the things that he values, the things that he loves, the things that he stands for and stands against, and that drives him to pray about those things. His heart's desire and prayer for them is for their salvation. He takes this to prayer, takes it to God. I have a a prayer list that reminds me of the things that that I ought to pray for. Well, Paul may have had a prayer list. I have no idea if he did or not. But if he did have one, he had no need to write down fellow kinsmen on that prayer list because he would never forget it. He was always praying for them. He had anguish in his heart for his fellow kinsmen, and so he was praying for them. It was written not in his prayer list. It was written on his heart, and it was a prayer that was often on his lips. His heart's desire and prayer for them was for their salvation. And so that raises the question for me, that, and it's a convicting question, do, do I, do you have a similar heart of compassion and desire to see the lost be saved? That you could say it's actually a, a deep down, gut level heart's desire for them to be saved, for them to come to know Christ, that, that drives you to prayer, that drives you to be concerned for them, that that keeps them on your mind, that drives you even to be useful to open your mouth and share the gospel, to open your life and minister to these people. Do you and I have that kind of heart? And I confess that all too often I don't. All too often I don't. And so we need to ask the Lord together to give us that kind of a heart, that kind of a a broken heart for the lost that we would not even have to have them on our list because they're always on our hearts and always on our minds. So we need to have this kind of heart for the lost. Paul is an excellent model here for us in this regard that he loved them and prayed for them and his heart broke for them. I want to do the same. And I want us to do the same. Each of us in here to have that kind of a heart. We've got people in our circles. Maybe in our families. Maybe in our just friendships. Co-workers. People around us. Our neighbors. Who don't know the Lord. And I, I want to have this kind of heart. That can't get them out of my mind. And so I pray for them. And so I go to them. And so I share with them. That, that was Paul's heart. And it's, it's an example to us. But he continues talking about his fellow countrymen, the fact that they had a zeal for God, but it was without knowledge. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They had an admirable zeal. He he would quickly confess about them. They are zealous for God. They're zealous for the law. They're committed to God. They're set apart for Him. You could tell it by looking at their dress. You could tell it by their diet. You could tell it by what they stood for, what they stood against. They were very proud to have the Lord as their God. It was part of the very fabric of, of their identity, that they were not like the Gentiles around them who were ignorant and unclean and impure. They were set apart and they knew it. They were zealous, zealous for God, zealous for the law, zealous for righteousness. But though they had such genuine and earnest zeal, they, they still had a very important blind spot, an area of ignorance, and their ignorance led to self-righteousness. And ignorant self righteousness. Their 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 great zeal was motivated uh, from the heart. It was it was deep, and it governed all of their lives, and it governed their whole nation. It governed everything that they did. But it was lacking in knowledge. It was lacking in knowledge, which you'd think a lot of them had. You know, the Old Testament memorized. They they had information galore. They had thought about this. The rabbis haggled about this. There were there were writings. They they they. The, the Bible wasn't new to them. They had it and they knew it, but they were ignorant. There was something that they didn't understand that ended up throwing them off course. is where they did not arrive at the thing that they were actually seeking. They didn't know about the righteousness of God. They, they sought the law. They sought to develop their own righteousness by means of the law. They were going to work that plan of the law. But they never came to understand the righteousness of God which has been manifested apart from the law. As Paul says in Romans chapter 3, they never came to understand the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. They didn't get to that point. They didn't understand that there was a, a blind spot. They remained ignorant in regard to that. They were ignorant of what so many today are ignorant of—that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They didn't know that. They—they they, they weren't aware. They didn't, and they didn't know what that meant for them. What that meant in their lives. They didn't understand that justification before God can only come by His grace. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. They didn't understand to look to him. Somehow it's too hard a message for for many, even in our day, that God has wrath. Pure and just and justified wrath for sin. Including for their sin. And that there must be a full propitiation of that wrath. Someone must bear that wrath. All the way, fully and completely. There must be a righteous substitute who's capable of fully bearing God's indignation, His, His fury, His wrath for sin. There must be a substitute capable of bearing that all the way, so fully, so that there is none left over for the person who has been propitiated, for whom there has been propitiation. They didn't understand. They, they, they had the law and they were zealous for the law, for doing the law, for, for working that plan, but they didn't understand what the law was pointing them towards. They didn't understand that the law was given to show them their own sin, their own inability. So they kept right on trucking. They kept right on trying to do the law, banging their heads against it glorying in it even it wasn't it wasn't as if it was a a, a toil this this was their life pursuing that law which would lead to righteousness but finding that it actually didn't lead to righteousness the concept of submitting to a righteousness alien to them was lost on them they were spending their time instead accumulating amassing Acquiring their own righteousness as if that would appease God. But they were ignorant of the concept of submitting to righteousness. To submit means to resign your claim or your authority, your right. You submit. You give it up. You submit to the the right or the claim or authority of someone else instead. This is what Jesus was doing, of course, when... He prayed in Luke chapter 22, Father, if you if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Says the Son of God to God the Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He demonstrated a Submission. That's what submission is. That's the concept, concept of submission. And sub, submitting to God's righteousness means you renounce the claim of your own righteousness. You let go of your own claim and you look to God for the righteousness that He provides. And so often it's hard to do that. I'm almost there. I'm sure I'm almost there. I mean, I'm a really good guy, and I'll be a really great guy, and, and I'll have the righteousness. I, I, will have, I will have satisfied all the things that God requires somehow. It's tough for us to let go of what should be blatantly obvious in our own failings. By the way, our failings are obvious to the people around us. I, I don't like to admit them. They sometimes get brought to me. <laughs> Several years ago, uh, some of our Canadian family owned a uh, ski boat and we would go water skiing. And I grew up in Fallon and, you know, we didn't have a lot of water and I didn't, yeah, So I didn't grow up water skiing. I had to learn later on. I realized there are places you can go water skiing around here. I had not done that very much. And what's funny when you watch someone who's new water skiing, you start off and you're down in the water and, your skis, and you're talking about balance and this, you're trying to figure it out. What happens almost every time? When a newbie starts, the boat goes, the rope pulls, and they tip right over forward. And then what do they do? They hold on for dear life. And that rope, which is meant to pull them up out of the water, is just dragging them underwater. And you can see the water just going over them because they're a a submarine at that point, right? And they won't let go. And you're thinking, let go, let go, let go. But they're just holding on for dear life. And that's a little bit like what is happening here. It's, it's not going to happen. It's, it's futility. Thinking that you can obey that law to the end, thinking that, that you can do all of those things that God requires, thinking that even after failure, after failure, after failure, that somehow you can work that plan until you get all the way to that state of righteousness is just like that beginner skier holding on to that rope for dear life. All the while screaming, I got this. And everyone in the boat's thinking, you don't got this. (laughs) Of course, all you hear is, you know, bubbles coming up because they're a submarine, remember. And that's sort of what's going on here. That's what uh, the Jews should have realized. With their experience with the law, they should have realized that is a perfect law that perfectly reflects God's character. And I don't measure up. And I never will. They should have realized that, but they did not realize that. Well, that raises a question for us, for you. Have you submitted to the righteousness of God? Have you submitted to the righteousness that that He provides? We call it an alien righteousness because it doesn't come from in here. It's from outside, given to us. And have you submitted to that righteousness, or are you still holding on to that rope? Being dragged underwater and everyone looking is saying, let go of the rope. It's not going to work. Are you insisting upon your own righteousness? Are you going to plead your own credentials on judgment day? Or have you submitted to God's righteousness that is available in Christ alone, by faith alone? He concludes with a very powerful verse here. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law. Now there's a lot of discussion. I I, I wasn't very encouraged when I began to read my, you know, commentaries and different scholars on this and they were saying, Oh, this is the most discussed verse in all of Paul. I thought, Oh, great. I have a week to read this. (laughs) The most discussed verse. Because what does the end mean? Telos is the Greek word. Uh, We we have some words that we get from that in English. The the discussion is in what way is he the end of the law? I I don't want to go into it enormously, but Paul has been using throughout the last paragraph or so. He's been using the imagery of athletics, of a race. If you look back to what he said in chapter 9 and verse 30, we can never get very far from chapter 9, can we? Chapter 9 verse 30, what should we say? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. The image there is they, they weren't even really in the race. They weren't running for that goal, for that prize, for that finish line. And they got it. That is a righteousness that's by faith. But it is real who pursued the law that would lead to righteousness. They were in a race. They had the goal. They were chasing after the goal, but they did not arrive at that goal. So he's using the imagery of a race. The end of the law, I think, describes the finish line. And I'll explain what I mean by that. When I was in high school, I uh, ran cross-country for two years. I'm not sure why, because I didn't enjoy running. Still don't really enjoy running. But I ran for two years for some reason. And the the best part of a cross-country race is that finish line. That's the best part. When it's done, <laughs> all right. And, and by the way, when I cross that finish line, I'm not going any farther. Like, people can carry me, but that, I, I did not enjoy running. But, but that goal, that goal in your mind that you're running for that finish line, that's kind of what is being meant here, I believe, with the end of the law that christ is the end of the law that he is the finish line in a race you're moving toward a particular goal you're trying to cross that line and you've got to run through you know the woods and you've got to run over the hill and all this kind of stuff but the goal the reason you're doing all that is because you want to get across the line you don't want to run up a hill you don't want to run across a golf course that's the point is to get across that finish line that is the goal that's the point of the race it's also the end of the race particularly for me because I wasn't going anywhere after I got across that finish line. That the finish line, the, the, the end of the law is the goal at which it's pointing and it's the conclusion. It's the termination. It's the, the finishing of that. Now, my analogy breaks down here though because the only way when I was running cross country that I could get to the finish line was to run 3.1 miles. I had to run the whole thing. I had to finish it. If I stopped at three miles, I didn't finish. I didn't cross that finish line. That's where the analogy here breaks down because the fact is, with, with the law, this is very different. The law was out there in front. The law was a finish line. It was a goal for them working and running, but they could never reach it. They could never do it. They, they could never get to that point. They could never finish it. Could never finish that whole race, but there was one who did, and only one who did. Who ran that race, who completed it, who crossed that finish line? Jesus is the one who completed it in all of its demands, in all of the law's perfections, in all of the law's requirements. God's character being perfectly revealed, and 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 the person who has the law being told this is what it means to. Honor God to be righteous. Jesus is the only one who ever did that. And so Jesus himself is the one who finishes that race. And when he finishes that race, that's the end. That's the end. Something has changed. The law pointed towards Christ as its end. So as you were running in that race and you were going up the hills and you're going across the fields, and you were being passed by people, or you were passing people, and you're realizing, you should eventually realize, I'm never going to get there. This law is perfect. This requirement is perfect, and I cannot do it. And it should cause you to look beyond yourself. It, it should, should cause you to realize, there's got to be somebody who can do this. It's not me, and it's not anybody I know. There's got to be somebody who can do this. It should have, pointed them to Christ. And so as they were working the law, as they were working that plan, as they were doing that race, to use the other analogy, they should have understood, I I, I can't keep the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, the, the basic requirements. I can't do that because it goes beyond skin deep. It goes right down to the heart, to my motivations, to, to my thoughts. And... Every time there's a breach of that moral law, it it would drive the person to the sacrificial system. The law had in it the sacrifices you were to make for the sins that you committed. So over here in the moral law, you you broke the moral law. Well, now you've got to go over to the sacrificial system and you've got to offer a sacrifice to God. And so maybe it's a bull, maybe it's a a goat, maybe it's a dove, there are different things. And how, how long would it take you to realize this dove can't substitute for me? Even this bull can't substitute for me. I as a human am so far beyond insignificance. Some, some bull, some, some bird, some animal sacrifice that I as a human am more significant than that. And it should cause a person to realize, I'm not sure this is the end of it. I committed this sin and I killed a bull. I killed a lamb. That's what I was supposed to do, but that that doesn't seem to measure up. There's more to this story, and they should have been driven to look for a sacrifice that was a fuller and a better sacrifice, who would actually be able to atone for sin, the sins of of mortals, the sins of humans. The image bearers, of God. And so they should have realized that the blood of bulls and goats can't atone for the sins of humans. And that should have caused them to look beyond, to look for one who could sacrifice, for one who could substitute, for one whose own worth and dignity and gravity could make that payment. They should have seen Christ. They should have seen God's provision. They should have seen the need for God's provision, not only to obey the law, but even to be the sacrifice for their failure to obey the law, the law pointed beyond itself. It had a goal, it had a target, it had a direction, something at which it was pointing, which is Christ himself. But the law also finds its end in Christ. When Jesus died and when he was, was raised from the dead in fulfillment of law, a new era dawned. Before the law had been like a guardian. Like a like a like a nanny, a, a nanny of larger and greater magnitude, like a like a guardian. One one uh, uh, marine told me that it was kind of like a uh, a drill sergeant or a drill instructor is more what this word is like. I don't I don't know that, but a guardian to bring the person who's not yet of age to bring them to Christ, to prepare them, to raise the child and prepare that child for something future, something bigger. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3 when he says the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So Christ, when he completed that law, when he finished that law, when he gave himself in fulfillment of the, the righteous requirement of the law and the demand for punishment, the law came to an end. There was a new era that dawned and, 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 and the, the, we were no longer under the guardianship of the law. Christ's work is completed. God's children deal directly now with God. We have Him as our Father. The law finds its end in Christ. And there's a prize, continuing on with the same imagery of a, of a contest, there is, there is a prize, and that prize is righteousness. Righteousness. Something that, that is very difficult for people to grasp or to accept or to understand, it certainly was for the Jews, is that the righteousness that satisfies God is not a righteousness that we do. It's not a righteousness that we accomplish. We all have an innate desire and belief that we can measure up somehow. Whatever the the equation looks like that we think we can measure up, we can do it. That's in us. That is in our very hearts, and that was in the hearts of the Jews. They thought they could do this. They thought it was... They thought acquiring righteousness, doing what God said, would bring them to such a point where they would have that stamp of approval from God. I have crossed the finish line. And what was so hard for them to understand is that the righteousness that satisfies God is only the righteousness that God himself does. Perfect righteousness by Christ. That's the only righteousness that satisfies God. And that righteousness that is satisfactory to God, found only in Christ, is then given to us as a prize, as a gift. We didn't work towards it. We didn't do something to make it happen. it, It was a gift to us. The righteousness that is satisfactory to God, accomplished by Christ, given to us as a prize. And that victory is in faith. That prize is given to us by faith. That righteousness that is what God requires, that is His standard, that is the fulfillment of His law, His law being the revelation of His own character, of what He's like, of what His expectations are, of what it means to be righteous. The only thing that measures up to that and fulfills that righteousness is is Christ and what He's done, and that becomes ours by faith, by belief. It's hard for us to... It's hard for many when they first hear the gospel. They hear about what Christ has done. They, they hear about what He has accomplished. And then you tell them, only believe and it'll be yours. Yep. believe in what? Believe and I'm supposed to do other things too, right? Because I have to believe plus what? The evangelist hears. No, it's faith. The victory happens in faith. And so for us, those of us who are in Christ, let's praise God for this salvation that is ours through faith in Christ. That he has accomplished for us. Praise God that his law. The perfect standard of righteousness. Has been met in all its requirements. By Jesus. And then that completion. That righteousness. Credited to us. That's the exchange. That's the the joy. That's That's the deal. That's the prize. That is ours by faith in Christ. That God. Is satisfied that God declares us to be righteous, that His standard, His requirement has been met entirely because of what Christ has done, applied to us through faith. I mentioned about that that friend uh, that I had worked with right out of high school. He never did come to Christ, at least not while I worked with him. And I lost contact with him uh, not long after that when we moved overseas. And I've often thought about that rebuke that he gave me. that I I wasn't loving. I've thought about that a lot. Paul loved the gospel. Obviously, he's written all these chapters developing the gospel. He committed his life to the gospel. He loved the gospel. He, He loved the glory of God in the gospel. But it didn't end there. It didn't end with him celebrating that gospel on his own. It didn't end with him even writing a long treatise, explaining and describing and diving into and and celebrating the gospel. When Paul was converted in Damascus, he immediately began to preach the gospel. And they sought to kill him, his fellow Jews did. So he escaped narrowly, let out of a window uh, in a basket, and got out of the city. So he went to Jerusalem. And he started preaching in Jerusalem. And pretty soon the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem wanted to kill him. And Later on, when he and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, they went to preach in Pisidian Antioch. And the Jews there were so jealous of the people thronging to hear what Paul was saying, listening to the gospel, that they incited persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they, they drove them out. So they went out from there, and they went... To Iconium, and they were opposed in Iconium and they moved on from Iconium and they went to Lystra and people followed them. Fellow Jews followed them from these other places, from Antioch, from Iconium, followed them to Lystra. They stirred up the crowds. They made such a riot. They dragged Paul out and they stoned him. And on and on and on. Paul's love for the gospel was certainly not academic. It it wasn't even only worship, though it was certainly worship. But when he thought about the gospel and he thought about his countrymen, it made such a gut-level connection that he was willing to risk his life again and again, that he was willing to be hunted, literally hunted, by his fellow Jews from town to town, To preach the gospel to them. Because his desire was for them to be saved. His desire was for them to be converted. His desire was for them not to face their own judgment based upon their own merits. And how much righteousness they had stacked up. His desire was for them not to have justice. But to have mercy in Christ. And that's our desire. That's our desire is that you would have not justice, but mercy in Christ. Our our desire for those around us who don't know the Lord in our own families and in our own circles who don't know the Lord, our desire for them is that every last one would submit to the righteousness of God and give up on the accumulation of their own, that they would submit in faith, to Christ. That's our desire. And it's, it's our desire that we would long for that even more. That we would have that heart deep down that would motivate us to rejoice in this amazing gospel for which we will give God thanks forever. The salvation that we have in Christ and that we would be driven beyond ourselves with a heart of compassion to the lost around us to bring that gospel to them, to see them find the same mercy that we have found. May that be our prayer. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that so often my heart is um, directed elsewhere, whether I'm thinking just about myself, my own circumstances, thinking about my little world, thinking about my desires. Father, I confess that all too often my heart is not broken for the lost. Father, I, I desire to celebrate and revel in Your gospel. I desire to understand it and proclaim it here at church and teach it to my family and focus on Your gospel in those ways and worship you for it. And I desire also to have a, a burning in my heart to take it to the lost around me. Father, I pray that you would accomplish that for me and for us. That as we have spent all this time talking about the gospel and celebrating and reveling in and looking at aspects of it and celebrating what you have done for us in Christ, that that would not just put a smile on our face while we're at church, that that would not just give us peace in our hearts that we never share with anyone else, but instead that it would bring us to this point like Paul where our sincere gut level, heart's desire would be for the salvation of the lost, that that would drive us to prayer for them, that that would drive us to go to them. Father, I confess my own, failure in this area. I pray that you would be precious in my sight and that the lost around me would catch my heart and that I would take that precious Christ to them. Bless us as we go, Father pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. If you want to pray with somebody, there'll be a family up here to pray with you. Otherwise, God bless you and you are dismissed.